0: How many of you were raised in a mainline denomination? Real high, so I can see. Uh, How many Catholics, myself included? How many Methodists, how many Baptists, most Baptists so far, Pentecostal assemblies? I'm surprised I'm a Church of Christ. There's a guy back there who raised two hands. (laughs) Uh, uh, Methobacterians, no, Uh, Episcopalians. As my dad called them And my dad was a died in the old Baltimore Catholic. Um, when you come out of these churches, and let me ask this question: How many of you married a person from a different denomination? Ah, isn't that fun? That's why you're in a Bible church, because <laughs> it's just like I don't like your church, I don't like his church, and so you find something different. Um, how many didn't have any church? Uh, you didn't grow up in a church. So several. Um, so. Just to illustrate, uh, we have this strange thing called Stonebridge Bible Church, and we come from a lot of different places. And we come from a lot of different experiences and expectations of what it was like to be in a church. Um, We have the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism as two ordinances. What I want to do today, a break from the uh, big book cover to cover series, will be in Isaiah next. But I wanted to to spend some time digging down a little bit more in the Lord's Supper and why it's so crucial what we do. If you recall, when we started Stonebridge, we said we were going to be uh, focused on the scripture, on exposition on discipleship and prayer. And we'll come back to that again and again and again, because in in Wayne's and my, and some of our steering committee's opinion, this has been sort of the challenge of churches as they change. We get away from the Bible, we get away from discipleship, and we have a lot of meaningless repetition in our, our lives. The challenge with the Lord's supper in a church is you don't want to become so routine that it becomes rote, nor do you want to do it so infrequently that it's rare. So we're, you're, it's not even a balance so much as just doing it well. And I've been around churches as a Catholic, as an altar boy, we had communion every Sunday, every Mass. It wasn't a Mass if you didn't have communion. And then uh, when I double dipped and went to the Bible church, they rarely had her. They had it once a month, and I'm scratching my head. Then we went to a Brethren-esque church that had it every Sunday which was interesting, very different than the Catholics. And as we've moved around countries, whether we've attended church or a church where I served or worked, they all have different ways of doing it. And uh, not that it's right or wrong, but I want to talk about some who, what, where, when, how and why we do this. Some of this will be a little academic. Some of you will love it. Some of you will be bored. But I also think it's important to know why we do these things and not just presume that we're all on the same understanding. Let's start, about, let's start with the idea of, of who participates in this. Who are the people that do it? And the simple answer is the church, the ecclesia. Um, this word has become, it's funny when you, you live long enough you see words that mean one thing and then they become another. This is sort of a, I would call it an informal association denomination of churches now. They call themselves ecclesia. There's websites that call themselves ecclesia. So we take a Greek word and we make it cool and we bring it in English. And so, ekklesia is a form, it's two words, the word kaleo in Greek means to call, and ek means out of or from, kaleo, ekklesia, so we're calling people out. Uh, I can't, I've never read this, maybe there are scholars that have, have written it, but it's my theory that ekklesia is the uh, fulfillment of synagogue synagogue, because the synagogue was the gathering of the Jewish people Uh, for their worship, ekaleo was the calling out of people to follow Christ. So you see this transition, and if you know your New Testament, the synagogue model is how the church began. Because when Paul the Apostle is a rabbi, he goes to the synagogues until he's booted out. Jesus went to the synagogues until he was booted out. And so they sort of, figuratively, went next door and started a church where you get the language house church today. So there's nothing really new, but it's not to overstate the obvious, but it's those who were called out the body of Christ. Any brethren, any Presby- uh, Plymouth Brethren uh, folks in the room? None. So uh, when we were in Texas, we went to a brethren-esque church, had Plymouth brethren roots. And there are two simple ways to talk about the brethrens. There are those that are closed assemblies and those that are open assemblies. So if you're not uh, we don't know a lot about you. We don't know if your story is true. If you've trusted Christ and so forth and so on, that's a closed assembly and you can't come to church in a closed assembly. And then you have the open brethren churches and that also translates into the Lord's supper because they had Lord's supper every time they meet. They don't believe you had church unless you have the elements. And so the open and closed thing. So it, it, kind of some wisdom in it. If you grew up Baptist and you moved, uh, what did you take with you? A letter. And then you become a member and we receive your letter. Uh, kind of makes some pretty good sense. We know about this person. They're a believer in Christ. They were a member in good standing, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if they still do that. I'm, I'm sure some do. Um, but there's the vestiges of that when you come. Uh, at the, the Lord's Supper are for those who have trusted in Christ and Christ alone it uh, doesn't matter if you walk the aisle or pray the prayer. Uh, it's, do you know Christ is your Lord and Savior? Have you put your faith, your trust in Him? He lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead, and any and all who trust in Him are given the free gift of eternal life. So the, the Lord's Supper is for this ecclesia, this group of people. Uh, secondly, what is this ordinance? What is an ordinance? If you have a military background, when you hear the word ordinance, it's not what we're talking about. It's a different kind of word. And these are kind of strange words we speak of water baptism and the lord's supper as the two ordinances of the church and let me give you just a little history for the catholics in the room you know a sacrament this is a complicated word story a sacramentum is latin to make something sacred we have uh, english is sort of a junkyard of other languages we bring these words into English, which is why it's so complicated for people to learn English as a second language. So this word sacrament become, sacramentum becomes sacrament to make something sacred. The Greek word mysterion, mystery, is sort of sewn together in the Catholic theology of a sacrament because something mysterious happens. Now, let's talk about mysterion for just a moment. There are two kinds of mysteries. Myster- that's a mysterious thing. We like mysteries. But what is a mystery when you peel back the intrigue and the drama? It's something you don't know. We're trying to figure out the mystery. So if you read mysteries, who a who done it, if you play the game clue, who did it, you're trying to figure out the mystery. The New Testament speaks of a mysterion as something that wasn't known and is now known. That's all it means. Paul says, the mystery was revealed to me. I didn't know it, and now I know it. So when a person is exposed to the gospel, they did not know that. I didn't know that Christ died for me. I didn't know it was by grace through faith. I thought I had to do these things or those things. No. So the mystery has been revealed. The Catholics kind of fold these words together. And the idea of what is happening is the priest is doing something to the elements. And he consecrates them. And something mysterious and sacred is occurring. So when we go back in this, we have to talk about the first church, what they were doing with these ordinances. So the Roman Catholics, then have seven sacraments, I won't bore you with all of them, but they have two greater and five lesser sacraments. And they believe those have to be administered by an ordained priest at his hands. And if you've been to a mass, you know how he does it. He washes his hands, he has the host, it's called, and wine. And uh, his hands are washed with a little water, and then he pours wine in the cup, and he might dip the host in the cup, he breaks it, he goes through a little ritual process. And that's from Leviticus, that he is consecrating those elements. And uh, we'll we'll talk about what happens to them, how, how they change, but let's go back first and talk about the word ordinance. So we have sacraments on the one side, and then we have ordinances, which probably if you were Baptist, you grew up hearing the word ordinance, not sacrament. So why the word ordinance this is interesting and it's one of those, you know, I, I suspect most people don't know this ordinance is a biblical word sacrament is not sacrament is not found in the scripture. It's a Latin term that's used to explain this an ordinance. The first time we are going to find it is in Exodus 12:14. What's Exodus 12 about? You know this. So about the Passover. And the the four or five times it's used, depending on your Bible, in explaining the Passover, is this was a permanent ordinance that Yahweh Elohim was setting in place for Moses and his people when he gets them out of Egypt. Remember, uh, it's it's, um, redemption from slavery, consecration for worship. That's the story of Exodus. Redemption from slavery in Egypt, redemption from slavery to sin, consecration being set apart so they can worship yahweh elohim we got to get you out of israel we got to get the idolatry out of you and consecrate you so you can worship yahweh elohim the way he intended and passover of course was the final plague the darkness plague comes and then the passover comes and all those who are not under the blood of the doorpost and lentil and the lamb is slain you know the story well if you're not under that you're going to die the firstborn's going to die so this is a permanent ordinance you are to celebrate throughout all your life your children's children children so that what they'll remember what god did for israel when they were in captivity in egypt it's a great history lesson we need something like this when it comes to the three branches of government we need an ordinance to teach people how you have the freedoms you have we don't do those israel had this thing called passover now when the passover occurred the first time it was real. They kill a lamb, they bleed it, they put blood on it, they eat the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, they escape under the cover of night in haste, Pharaoh's army is destroyed, Uh, Pharaoh's firstborn die, and the end of the story is Israel is now free, Uh, they're redeemed from slavery, and they're going to be consecrated for worship. When they celebrate the next Passover, do those events happen again? It's just what? A reminder. It's an ordinance. So from the Exodus passages, we learn that this ordinance was a command. God said, you do this to remember what I did for you, because why? We forget everything. And you better teach your children, because unless you teach them, they will not know the story. And I always love the, you know, how poor our own history is. Do you know your grandmother's maiden name? Do you know your great-grandmother's maiden name? If you do, you're a nerd. No one else does. I mean, we forget If someone doesn't teach you and remind you, you forget. So the ordinance was established so they would not forget. Now where Protestant churches are gonna separate from the Catholic churches are, is this something sacred and mysterious or is this a remembrance that we do because God commanded us to do it? And this begins to split in a couple of ways. Um, These ordinances are part of a local church. So when we talk about the protestant church having two ordinances the lord's supper and water baptism it's because jesus said in the great commission uh, as you go make disciples of all ethnos all nations baptizing them identifying them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit when he has the last supper with the disciples he says do this in remembrance of me what is he doing at the last supper he's fulfilling the passover once for all what he did then was unique because he, he's both the sacrifice, the one fulfilling it, and he's teaching his disciples it's now been fulfilled. But I want you to remember this. So the permanent ordinance for the Jew to remember how God redeemed them from slavery and consecrated them for worship, Jesus solves this ultimately. And he goes, to paraphrase, it's a good idea if you keep doing this. Because you've got to remember from whence you've come. You've got to remember if I didn't die in your place or on your behalf instead of you, you'd still be in your sin. You got to remember, if I wasn't resurrected, you're not going to be resurrected, and you have to teach your children and their children and their children, or they're all they won't know, and you'll forget if you don't remind yourself because we forget so many things. Um, what we call an ordinance, then, very simply for Protestant churches, and this is very broadly speaking, are these two things: the Lord's Supper and. Um, baptism so what then are the elements what are these things that we have in these stations what do they mean and again that 's why I ask about your background because you may or may not have been taught some of this but uh, this is a little deep but I want to I want to explain it to you because I think it's so important to understand our history I've, I've shared with you the last few weeks i 've gotten kind of deep into Augustine and Luther uh, to the point where I think my wife's tired of me talking about it but um, It's so interesting how in 300 and 400 AD, this is a big issue. This is a huge issue for the church. And you know what? We don't know our history. So let's talk about some of these big words. The first one is transubstantiation. I know that's a word you probably haven't used this year. Transubstantiation. It goes back to 1215, which is actually quite late. If you think of the first church being the first hundred years or so after the New Testament, we think of it. Let's look at Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 24 and read Jesus' words and see where this notion of transubstantiation begins in Roman Catholicism. Mark 14:22 while they were eating, he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, by the way, that phrase, given thanks, is eucharistēs eucharistēs if you are a Catholic, you talk about the Holy Eucharist and you think about it as a object. eucharistēs is Thanksgiving, not an object. So they're calling, the Catholics are calling the Eucharist, not this, the host is not the Eucharist, although that's how they explain it, it's the Thanksgiving. So when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So take this is my body, and this is my blood, literally. So what the Catholics had to do, and then I've seen Creed and going forward, big controversy. What does this mean? And they came up with this explanation of transubstantiation. simply Christ is substantially present in the element. He's substantially present in this thing, but it hasn't changed its form. Sometimes you'll hear the doctrine of real presence. He's really there, but that's a cracker, and in our case, grape juice. That is not, it hasn't changed in its form, but it's been transubstantiated. So when the priest consecrates the elements in the Catholic Church, the Catholics believe that this is actually changed in substance, but not in form. Make sense? So transubstantiation. Well, the early reformers come along, and, and by the way, don't forget this. Who are the reformers? Catholic priests. This is like one of the biggest, some of my arch reform friends who lo- love to argue with me about things. Um, I said, do you realize these guys were priests? They were Catholics. They weren't trying to start a Protestant branch of the government of church. They were trying to reform the errors of the Catholic Church, which was the only church at the time. And so the early reformers, this was one of a number of key doctrines that they went after. They said, number one, there's nothing in the Bible that says, literally, this is the body and blood. But well, Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. So this is a huge debate for them in 400 AD and following. The Lord's Supper that we take uh, would fall later in time, uh, excuse me, the the formers take, Luther comes out with what's called consubstantiation. And this almost seems like they're making up words. So transubstantiation, its substance is the same, the form is the same, but the substance has changed. Luther says, no, it's con, meaning with substance. And the phrase that they would use is that Christ is in, with, under, around the elements. So it's still a piece of bread and it's still a, a sip of juice or wine, but he's in around underneath the presence and they'll commingle this idea. Is that really the body and blood of Jesus? Well, not like the Catholics say, cause that's wrong. That's heresy. That's weird. If we're eating the body and blood of Jesus, which by the way, if he's dead, buried and resurrected, where's his body? We're not re-sacrificing it every Sunday, which is one of the loops of the crucifix and the celebration of the Mass and why the Protestants took Jesus off the cross. And you go, no, he's not on the cross anymore. He's ascended into heaven. He's resurrected. The cross is down. The grave's empty. So you see some of this development. So Luther uh, started this thing called consubstantiation, um, a prayer book that I, I have not um, talked about much with you all. It's called Valley of Vision. Um, we use the handbook to prayer uh, to get us out of our meaningless repetition. But this is a book of Puritan prayers. I love this book, Valley of Vision. It's a little complicated because of the language. Uh, it's is King James-esque. And some of the theology you have to watch carefully. And I want to show you uh, this Lord's Prayer. And uh, Arthur Bennett, when he compiled this, he didn't give attribution. But what he did is he basically took sermons and phrases, and like if it was a, a Alexander Toplady or uh, William Sankster, he took something that they had written and he put it into a prose form. And so we don't know who the authors are. But um, this one is called The Lord's Supper. And um, uh, Clay was kind enough to take a picture and said, well, let's show what it looks like, because this is how I mark stuff up. Um, I'm not a precept marker-upper, but I have my own little system. Um, I don't like the thou, thus, dust. dust. I, those, those words, they, they just they trip me up. So I'm a little, um, I won't use the word, but you know what I mean. I, I, I change things. And so I, I change these words. And so I'm going to read it the way I wrote it, not the way uh, Bennett edited it. Good, uh, God of all good, I bless you for, now notice, the means of grace What's the tip here? This thing called the Lord's Supper is the means of giving you grace. This is revealing their theology. So I struck that out. I bless you for grace. Teach me to see them in your loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. You have prepared for me a feast and though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness when I hear his invitation and see his wondrous grace. I cannot hesitate, but must come to you in love your spirit by your spirit, enliven my faith to rightly discern and spiritually apprehend the Savior, while I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death. See what he's saying here? These this is this is Jesus here. And let's just say he was Lutheran. This is, so as I look at those, I gaze upon the elements. May I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself as an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood. Now, this is all good, right? It's not bad, but it's leading. He's saying more about the elements than the Bible says. Does that make sense? the means of grace when I look at them I envision you and and so there's some tripwires we need to be just aware of not to beat up on it or or criticize it but just you're you're a critical thinker not a critic you're a critical thinker when you read things Um, help me rightly grasp the breadth and length of his design Uh, draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence and love, embrace my Lord. And see, I scratched out receive because I don't like the implication of that. I'm not receiving Jesus when I have this piece of bread or drink this little cup of uh, juice or, or wine. I'm not receiving him, but that's what the Catholics and early reformers clung to was there was a real presence going on. Does it make sense? I hope I'm not boring you. I love this stuff, sorry. Um, (laughs) In the supper, I remember his eternal love. And I added perfect obedience, boundless grace, infinite compassion, suffering, agony, cross-redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and glory. Do you receive assurance of pardon, adoption, and glory when you do that? I don't think that's the intent. The intent was do this to remember what I've done for you. Now, if that leads us to say, I, I, I have this piece of broken bread in this cup that you died in my place on my behalf. This was your body. That, and that's where I do like the crucifix as a reminder. He died on a cross, a horrible death for you and me. That's the greater love. So it's not wrong, but if we stay there and understand the full implication of Lord's Supper, we're missing it. We're getting kind of stumbled along with uh, some bad teaching, I would suggest. As the outward elements nourish my body, uh, so may your indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until the day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at His heavenly feast. I love the language. I love the book. It's just something you have to be careful when, which is one reason I don't go around endorsing it all the time, because there's a lot of theology in there you have to sift through. But I just read that prayer to illustrate these are early church fathers who are still wrestling with what this stuff means. And the vestiges of that continue even in mainline churches that may not even know why they're doing what they're doing. Calvin comes along, and he's going to teach real presence in a similar fashion, but he's going to start differentiating it, and he's going to use the phrase, the means of grace, more so than the early reformers. This is the means of grace. I have an Anglican priest friend of mine. He loves Christ. I would call him a confused, wonderful believer, just like me. I'm a confused believer, and he views As an Anglican priest, when he administers his elements, he is conveying grace to a person. So that goes back to the mysterion. That goes back to the Catholic view. They don't say it's transubstantiation, but they say something, I don't mean this pejoratively, magical, sacred is happening here in this element. And even if you don't know this and you go to churches that teach that, that's where the church teaching comes from. That's my point. And then a guy named Ulrich uh, or Huldrych Zwingli comes along, and he's, he's in Sweden, Switzerland, and the Swiss have a Reformation that's a little different than the complication of these Reformations. There's not like a unified Reformation voice. Luther makes a whole lot of enemies in his lifetime, and Calvin and Zwingli kind of back clean up as the time goes on. But Zwingli comes along, and he uses the word memorial, which becomes memorialism. And what he says is it does not change in substance or form. It's simply a memorial. And so most of your Baptist churches, um, Methodist churches, it depends on really who's their pastor and what they're teaching. Um, Catholic churches are still going to hang on transubstantiation. Most Bible churches are going to be, or evangelical or fundamental are going to be in the memorial camp. But um, any of you around when Navigators was big on a college campus, Crusade, InterVarsity, now it's RUF, it's it's sort of taking the university by storm. And so these things come and go, and these trends come and go. And the RUF, I always wanna say RFU, the RUF, uh, their movement is more reformed, and so you're gonna hear some of this language your college students, or you might come home with, and that goes back to the conveyance of grace kind of ideas. So these things swing all the time. But Zwingli basically said, by partaking in them, you are experiencing a communion you're sharing in them. The word communion is loaded, we'll talk about that in a minute, but let me read a section from C.K. Barrett on his Gospel of John, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, which delivers men from hunger and thirst. Men take this bread by coming to him and believing in him. But this believing and this coming are not works which, like others, lie in the power and will of man. Well, that's a good sentence. Otherwise, it's how good of a Christian you are that you come by your works, by your will. Can you will yourself to be a better Christian? Don't raise your hands. How many of us would like to be better Christians? You're not going to be a better Christian. You can grow in Christ. In Christ, you are a righteous person, but we're cobbled by sin. And so that's where, again, this language of the conveyance of grace, of grace. very uh, brilliant, powerful, important, intelligent people when they they think the commands of grace happens when they take that element and, and it does something to them. And what Barrett is saying when he explains the bread of life is so helpful. This believing and this coming are not works that lie in the power of man. And he continues, they do not exist apart from the power and will of God upon whom they are completely dependent. And I would just sum it up to say, an easier way to say what Barrett's saying, it's by the grace of God that this experience of him drawing us to himself, he gives you the faith, he gives you the grace, he gives you the will, but the will of the flesh doesn't make us any better. Walking in obedience, walking in faithfulness, being more like Christ is our objective, but doesn't make us a better Christian than somebody else and you might be uh, less sinful than you were in your high school years or college years, but that's the tension. So who participates? The church, the believer in Christ. What's an ordinance? Um, different views. I'm going to suggest memorial is the best part of this. These things are memorials or term minus. Fourth, how, uh, why do we do this? And I'm gonna give you four reasons. Number one, we remember Christ. In First Corinthians eleven twenty-four. And when he had given thanks, Eucharist again, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Some of you had churches that had communion tables that said, This do in remembrance of me. You remember ever seen those? Or do this in remembrance of me. And what's the emphasis? Is it the doing or is it the remembering? And this is where people go crazy. I think it's the remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. Why do you have Thanksgiving dinner and talk about what you're thankful for? To remember. Why do you put up a Christmas tree and spend all kinds of money you don't need to spend and buy presents for everybody and hang, you know, all these cool Jesus things all over your house for the birth of the Savior and everything. Because you want to have presents? Well, maybe, but you also want to remember that he was born to die, that we might live. And you want to teach your children that from a very early age, right? Does anybody's nativity scene, does Jesus go missing like it did in our house? You know, when you put the little baby in there, somehow he ends up somewhere else. It's, it's sort of like a magnet for theft or something, I don't know. But we're remembering him. Secondly, we're proclaiming his death. And this is one that I think is missed by most churches. And if you've been around me, oftentimes when we take the cup I'll say, say with me, I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, because this is from Paul's explanation in verse 26 of the same chapter for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes Um, not to bore you with too many more words but the word proclaim is a big word in the new testament it's kata angelio you know you angelio becomes evangelism you is what good euphonium euphemism angelio is a message or a messenger so a euangelion is a good message, or a good messenger who brings good news. So kata is this comes alongside, and it's a proclamation. The euangelion becomes known as the gospel. This is good news to be proclaimed. And Paul says, when you do this, you're proclaiming Christ's death. Why didn't he say you're proclaiming Christ's resurrection? Why did he say you're proclaiming Christ's death? Because that's what the ordinance is doing. He died. We're remembering the broken body and the shed blood. when you do this, you're saying he really died and until he comes, this is our memorial. Uh, thirdly, we anticipate his second coming and there's a number of verses, but I take one from Matthew 26, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you that had to be encouraging to them in my father's kingdom. And then John 141 to four that we Here at funerals probably is the only time we hear this passage, but it's a beautiful section. Do not let your heart be troubled. Can I stop there for just like a side sidebar? Um, I think it's five times in the Gospel of John. uh, I haven't done this homework. This is extemporaneous so it's dangerous. I think five times up to this point, Jesus was troubled. He was troubled in his spirit. He was troubled at the garden. Um, The same word, if I remember correctly, is in John is it five when the waters are stirred up. Uh, and and the, the guy says, no one is here uh, when the water's stirred up to put me in. You know, Jesus says, you want to get well at the pools of Bethesda? And um, the word, the troubled, the water, King James said, the water is troubled. So Jesus has used this word five times uh, up to this point in John, or a number of times. Here he tells his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. He himself is troubled. Says, Guys, don't be troubled. Well, I don't know if they heard that then and there, but we can read it now and go, Whoa, Christ was troubled himself facing Calvary. And he says, Guys, don't be troubled. And how can he say that? The next part believe in God, believe also in me. You don't have to be troubled because I'm going to solve this problem you have called sin. You can rest and not worry about your eternal life and your eternal soul. You're not going to go to Calvary like I am. Don't be troubled. I'm going to take the trouble for you. It's a beautiful picture of the incarnate God, man, I'm going to have trouble. So you don't have to be troubled in my father's house. There are many dwelling places. If it were not, so I would have told you for, I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may also be, and you know, the way where I'm going, did they know it? They didn't get it till later which is another delightful part of how Christ loves us. And then fourth, we experience and enjoy fellowship when we participate in these elements. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of blessing which, uh, which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ, since there is one bread he who are, uh, we who are many, Are one body, we all partake of one bread. The word sharing is the word koinonia, which is another Greek word we wore out. Koinonia groups and koinonia coffee shops and so forth and so on. Um, It can be sort of truncated as fellowship, but it really means more an alliance. So um, let's say China and the US come to a trade agreement. That would be an alliance. We're going to tax at this rate and this level and you're going to tax at this rate and this level and we're going to keep that alliance. That's an alliance, almost like a relationship. So when the New Testament talks about koinonia or fellowship, it's really an alliance. What that means is, um, as I shared with many of you, Cindy and I were on vacation last week, had a wonderful time in North Carolina and um, we're with uh, five couples uh, that are closer than family. You got friends like that, I hope? Didn't want to leave. Last night we were coming home from an event, and uh, I said, Cindy, let's just drive to North Carolina and text all our friends and say, let's meet there and see if we get the same house right now. It's only five hours. Uh, It was just, it was so wonderful because of the alliance we have. Because the, the brothers and sisters we never had in our family, we have in the body of Christ. And there are some of the richest relationships on the planet. That's sharing. Now, let's turn the heat up. Do you have that relationship with Christ? Because what the Lord's table is saying and what Paul is saying here, when you do this, you're sharing in the blood of Christ. You're sharing in the body of Christ. You're sharing in the work of Christ. This is the family of God, which is language we used to love in the 70s, but it's kind of fallen out of use the common loaf, one loaf we're all sharing, one box of matzah that's gluten-free, for those of you who care, is all, it's broken and it's all one loaf. It's one, one bottle that poured in, that's the metaphor. Um, just to review the five, because the four I went to quickly, remember Christ. We proclaim his death, we anticipate his second coming, his return, and we experience and enjoy fellowship. Derek Kidner, in his, one of his throwaway comments in the book of Genesis, uh, He's talking about when the woman took and ate, and we have it on the screen. She took and ate. And he writes, so simple the act, so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. So the fall of man was take and eat. The salvation of man, take and eat. Beautiful bookends. Uh, The extraordinary privilege we have as body of Christ is we get to do this together. My prayer is it never becomes rote or ritualistic. And that's partly up to me and partly up to you, that when you take a little cracker and you dip it in a piece, uh, a cup of juice, and you walk over and you say a prayer with your friend, your family, by yourself, however you choose to do it, um, that you understand and are reminded it's an ordinance. We're doing this to remember what he did Um, In God's great kindness, Jesus is still eating with tax collectors and sinners. And you and I are invited to that meal.